Well, I invite you to that text, Proverbs chapter 4, and I invite you to hear the first four verses of that chapter. And if the Lord Jesus walked into the room right now and read this text for you, it would be no more the words of God than my voice reading it. Hear and allow this penetrating passage to sink into the deepest part of your heart. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the living God. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding, for I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. The Word of the Lord. Let's again ask for God's blessing as we consider these things. Oh, Father, it's astonishing that we can address You that way as Father. We thank You that it was the Lord Jesus who taught us thus to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. That His Father would be our Father. That He would indeed be our brother. That we would be united to You in that same familial bond of love as He is. That You are our Father. Oh, forgive us for the depths of our doubt about Your loving heart. Forgive us for our indifference to You in the response of love that is only appropriate for a father like You are. Thank You that Your love isn't conditioned on our response or our obedience. That Your love flows forth from Yourself and that it's an unchanging, unconquerable, never failing, always flowing love. Thank You for Your heart. Would You pull back the veil and let us see who You are. See Christ as our brother. And may Your love so flood us now and help us in the relationships that You've given us, both domestic and in the church, immediate family and extended. Lord, we all need help. We need help. Would You come and help us, Lord? In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, today we'll be looking at a topic that affects every single one of us every single day. And this is also a topic, thankfully, that is very near to the heart of our God. He never fails to be interested in this topic. Today's sermon focus is the family. The wisdom of God infiltrating the layers, if you can picture the onion, just every layer of every relationship of our immediate and our extended family, as well as our church family. The Scriptures teach us in places like Ephesians that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from God. He ordered our steps. The preservation and the health of the nuclear family. Husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children, brothers and sisters. The preservation and the health of the nuclear family is vital to the preservation of any society. Therefore, the breakdown of the family in any culture is, make no mistake, a strategic attack of Satan because he confuses through the brokenness of homes, he confuses the world about the love of God. So today we'll look at what the book of Proverbs has to say about three pairs of relationships. And you fall into at least one of these. Husbands and wives, parents and children, Brothers and sisters. 
All of us, as I said, are in at least one of those categories. You are either a spouse or a parent. You are either a child or a sibling. And some of us have been entrusted with several of those assignments from God. The sermon in a sentence would be something like this. Like the forever family of heaven, where God's children will abide in the happy place of His harmony and His love. The home on earth that revolves around the love of God in Christ is the blessed family. Let me take the second part of that sentence, which will be our focus. The home on earth that revolves around the central, stable, fixed point of the love of God in Christ, that is the blessed family. So right from the beginning, I want to clearly acknowledge that I am well aware that many of us have not come from homes like that. Maybe most of us have not come from homes like that. And where we've come from is zero indication of where we are headed. Because our God is not limited by our past. And our God is not limited by our inabilities. And even though many of us have wounds that go very deep and the scars have not yet healed, it has been my prayer and it is even now that God would graciously minister to us today from all of our varied, varied backgrounds and experiences, from all of our past and present struggles and heart wounds, that God would minister to us. The people who are in or have come from broken families are well within God's redemptive reach. I want you to think about His loving words to the children of Israel just after they crossed the Red Sea. This is post-redemption talk. You are already Mine, and God is speaking to them. He says to them in the Ten Commandments that sin and iniquity and treason against God will affect the third and fourth generation. We don't believe in karma. My sin doesn't get transferred to my children by karma. We don't believe in that nonsense. But there are patterns. And the apples don't fall far from the trees. And we do learn a lot from the people by whom we are reared. And sin does in that way trickle down to the third and fourth generation. But do you know what the rest of that verse says? But righteousness will flow for a thousand generations. So somehow, someway, in God's redeeming power, There have to be generation changers. For sin to stop flowing to the third and fourth generation and start flowing to a thousand generations. And I believe that this room is full of those kind of generation changers. Where God is going to cause you, by His grace, to be able to leave a legacy for your great, 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 great grand should Jesus tarry that they won't even know God began to use you to start. Here's kind of the good, bad, sobering, and exhilarating news all in the same phrase. A hundred years from now, all new people. All the people on the earth today, a hundred years from now, I did meet a a hundred-year-old sister yesterday, But barring rare exception, 100 years from now, all new people. And you can leave a dent in that generation for the glory of God. Old Testament Joseph, just a teenager most likely, stripped away from his family, sold into slavery. Moses, in his infancy, raised in Pharaoh's courts, Hadessa, Esther, in the king's palace at a tender young age, Job, 
the great saint bereaved of his closest bonds of human love all on the same day, the Lord Jesus, presumably experiencing the death of his earthly father Joseph when he was just a boy or a young man, almost certainly prior to the time he turned 30 years old, since Joseph, his father, is not mentioned again in Scriptures after the beginning of his public ministry, and when he was 12 years old in the temple, we don't hear the name Joseph. Maybe he was there. We hear his father and mother. Did Mary remarry? We don't know. Jesus knows what it's like to have heartache in the home. Jesus' family tree, His pedigree, is the genealogy of the nobodies and the broken from the most atrocious of family situations. And if you're suffering today in the midst of a harsh or broken family situation, or you have come from that stock like many of us, my prayer has been that the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3, that's His name. It's not what He does. It's who He is. That the God of all comfort would meet you in this message and restore to you, as the prophet said, what the locusts have eaten. And may the days ahead of you and the days ahead of us all whether you've come from the picture-perfect family or you've come from the picture that's been shattered, may the days ahead of us all become a story of God's great grace. And the way that happens is when we unite together under the blood of Jesus to help each other walk that path. Family brokenness is no obstacle to God. He's able to redeem the heart of anyone, anytime, anywhere, from anything. The most broken situation needs not be look, need not be looked at as an obstacle, but an opportunity for God to show up and show off and extend His love. He loves to do it. So before I dig into Proverbs, I want to begin with the conclusion. To open this message, having set the stage from the reality that we're all aware that we don't all have it all together, I want to begin by thinking with you about the conclusion. The love of the Father. The good news. The Gospel. I want you to think with me here, not generally, but specifically. I want you to look into the prism of the Gospel. I want you to stare as deeply as you can into the good news of God's love for His people. And I want you to think specifically with me for just a moment about Him being God the Father. He's been that forever. Without you and without me. He's always been a Father. From eternity to God the Son, He knows what it's like to have the exhilarating joy of being a delighted father in his child. Begotten, not made. Jesus forever existing. Not through procreation, but from eternity. Having no beginning, God has always been Father. So now I want you to think about the Gospel. What's the good news of Christianity? The core of the Gospel is the good news that God desires, not needs, to be your Father forever. He wants you. He desires you. The cross of Christ is God the Father's declaration to the universe that though He's needless, you can have Him as your Father forever, which would bring His great heart delight. In the book of Romans, Paul summarized the special relationship that Christians have with God by saying it this way, God has put the spirit of adoption as sons into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And as if that were not good enough that we get to call Him our Father, the next verse says, the Holy Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Biblically, you have a Father. Biblically, you do have a Father. And I'm not referencing your earthly parents. Animals can procreate. 
Not every man who has children is a father. Biblically, you do though have a father. Whether he's been an absentee in your life or been there every day from the beginning, I'm not talking about your earthly father. Ephesians 2 and John 8.44 both say that we're born children of Satan. Jesus said, your father the devil, John 8.44. You're either a children a child of Satan or you're a child of God. And there's no middle ground. And the good news of the Gospel, which I'm almost done summarizing, but want to just keep on going and going and going, is 1 John 3.1. See how great a love the Father, the Father, the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Your earthly father may have been awesome, or he may have been another far less admirable word that you might choose. But the love of God is such that although he had been a father forever, he chose to be a father to the fatherless. Psalm 68.5 So dear friends, why did Jesus die? Why did the Son of God, who Himself is eternal, come and robe Himself in human flesh, born of a virgin, cry as a baby, walk the streets of Jerusalem and beyond, raised in Nazareth, serve as a carpenter, teach and do miracles, preach and heal, only to be led at around the age of 33 to a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem to suffer as cruelly as possible at the hands of men. Why did Jesus die? And why did that same Jesus suffer all that to crown it with the climactic conclusion of His resurrection and victory over the grave, conquering sin, death, and Satan? Why did Jesus die and rise again? The answer to put all the biblical passages together in a phrase would faithfully be this, so that you could be God's child forever. The resurrection of Jesus is the theme song that God sings at your adoption ceremony when you put your faith in Jesus and turn from your sin. When you trust Him as your Redeemer and you fly into the arms of Christ with no other hope for you ever to be made right with God, when you throw yourself into the arms of the merciful and mighty Jesus, God the Father starts to sing a song at your adoption ceremony when He makes you His child. And that adoption song is the resurrection of Jesus. No matter where you've come from or where you're going, no matter what you're facing today, It's not dramatic pause. It's not dramatic pause. This isn't drama. This isn't a pep rally. No matter where you've come from, no matter what you're facing today, won't you come to Jesus? The upshot of the sermon is this. If you don't have Jesus, which is why I began with the Gospel, if you don't have Jesus as the center of your heart and the center of your home, you cannot have the blessed family that God intended for you. I'm not here today to ask you to give up anything. I'm here today to call you to gain everything. What do you lose to gain God Himself? If you don't have Jesus as the center of your heart, if you do not have Jesus as the center of your home, you cannot have the blessed family that God intended. We talk a lot about nuclear families and broken families and blended families. You want to know what the most broken family of all is? The most broken home of all is not the one who was served papers from a courthouse. Those are broken. The most broken home of all is sometimes not the family that's fallen apart. You know as well as I do, because many of you have been there and some of you might still be, that the most broken home is the one that revolves around you. When you try to usurp Jesus, 
There is a God and you're not Him. And the greatest news you can say to your family, part one, good news kids, this family's not about you. Better news kids, this family's not about me. The blessed home is the home that orbits around the fixed center of Christ. Whether you're single or married, whether you're married with children or childless, whether you're newlyweds or widowed, whether you're thriving or divorced, placing your home right here, right now, today, on the altar of heaven, at the feet of the risen Jesus, to put your household, to put your bonds of love, to put your immediate and extended family relationships, to put your church family as an ornament in the constellation that orbits around Jesus is the open secret to a happy dwelling. So now Proverbs. Instead of reading one passage from Proverbs like I did from the opening verses of chapter 4, to unpack each of the points, I'm going to make a confession. We're seven weeks into an eight-week series on Proverbs, and I have zero clue how to preach this book. <laughs> I don't know how to preach Proverbs. I have mad respect for guys who've just taken it expositionally from first to last. But to me, it seems that you can pull a thread and just as faithfully preach the book. There are themes all over Proverbs, and they're woven together on a string of gold and these pearls on that string, I believe, are meant to be compacted at times to be looked at carefully. In that regard, we'll pull the string through Proverbs and look at those three relationships. Number one, husbands and wives. Number two, parents and children. And number three, brothers and sisters. Before we just dive right back in there, I want to read a prayer. And instead of closing our eyes and bowing our head, I want you to keep your eyes wide open. But instead of looking at me only, I want you to pray with me. And the reason I want your eyes open and your heads up is because this is not a prayer I wrote. It came out of the old prayer book, The Valley of Vision. And I want to, lend, I want to offer it to the Lord with you as our prayer. Oh God, I cannot endure to see the destruction of my kindred. Let those that are united to me in tender ties be precious in Thy sight and devoted to Thy glory. Sanctify and prosper my domestic devotion, my instruction, my discipline, my example, that my house may become a nursery for heaven. That my church may become the garden of the Lord, enriched with the trees of righteousness of Thy planting for Thy glory. Let not those of my family who are amiable, moral, attractive, all kind of good things, let not those of my family who are amiable, moral, and attractive fall short of heaven. Grant that Thy promising appearances and the promising appearances of a tender conscience and a soft heart, the alarms that my loved ones have and the delights they take in Thy Word be not finally blotted out, but bring forth judgment unto victory in all of those whom I love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number one, God's wisdom for husbands and wives. Let's take them one at a time, shall we? Husbands, squarely in the category of verses we rarely hear read aloud in church, listen to Proverbs chapter 5. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and He watches all His paths. No doubt a sensual and sexual text. God doesn't blush when He talks about these things. 
He made sexuality and He made it wonderful. He made it as a display of His own pleasure. And the reason, mind you, that Old Testament circumcision, if you think about it for about .2 seconds, you'll realize how odd that is as a sign of God's covenant with His people. But even that, is God shouting at all times that He's right in the middle of the most intimate part of human bonds. Sexual purity is commanded by God. And one of the themes of Proverbs to husbands is be pure. Now some of you were raised in a world right here in the same city where others of you were raised, but your worlds are totally different. Some of you were raised in a sexually drunk culture. And as I prayed and spoke about just a moment ago, you are more than a glandular animal. Animals operate only in heat for sexual gratification. You're not an animal. You're made in the image of God. You're made, yes, with the ability for intimate gratification, but you are a moral being created in the Imago Dei. You are held accountable by your Creator to be monogamous in your sexuality within the bounds of human marriage between one man and one woman. Should I say it again? Monogamous? Inside of marriage, one man, one woman. That's God's standard from first to last. Do we find examples of polygamy and other things like that in Scripture? Yes, we do. But Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, both repeat the command, husband, leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, singular. That's the teaching of Scripture from first to last. So on this passage that I just read, that made some of you blush and smile, And God's not ashamed of it. Derek Kidner wrote, in Proverbs, the union of one man with one woman is clearly shown to be the norm. Now the passage that I read to you from Proverbs chapter 5 is obviously speaking about both the joys and the dangers of sexual gratification. But the key phrase of the entire instruction is in verse 19. New American Standard, listen carefully. Be exhilarated Always with her love. Husband to wife. ESV says it this way, be intoxicated always with her love. The King James, be thou ravished always in her love. The point of the verse is that the heart of the husband is to be ferocious in his affection toward his wife. Her love to him should be the prize He seeks to win all His days. Not that He gives up seeking to win after she says, I do. She, to Him, should become more beautiful with age, not less. Her twilight years should beam to Him the brightness of His deepest earthly joys. Derek Kidner again is worth quoting on this verse. The husband is urged not merely to be loyal. You should be loyal. But not merely to be loyal, but rather also to be ardent. A-R-D-E-N-T. Ardent toward his wife. Exhilarated in her love. Husbands, the world is hurting to see men who delight in their wife. Ephesians, uh, Proverbs 5.21 gives the motivation behind 5.19. 5.19, be exhilarated in her love. Here's the reason why. Verse 21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Let me speak clearly. If you live in sexual sin, your day is coming. Because the passage I just read ends with the verse I just read. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and He watches all His paths. The context is, I don't care who else is going down that stream. 
Don't float like a dead fish down a river. Swim, swim against the current of our godless culture by the power of the Spirit to the glory of Christ. Listen to the wisdom of God for a husband toward his wife. Instead of seeing this, by the way, if you're not a husband, instead of seeing this as the time just to check out, why not engage so that just for a few minutes you may learn even more from God's Word how to pray and encourage husbands to be what God has called us to be. Husbands, your time is almost over. Listen carefully. Proverbs 2.17 This verse teaches us, I'm going to read it momentarily, that to break your marriage vows through sexual infidelity is to violate the covenant that God gave you. And to abandon your most special earthly companion who pledged herself in innocence to you in her youth. Derek Kidner points out from that, that verse, Proverbs 2.17, the word companion. It's the Hebrew word alup, A-L-L-U-P, which is a term which refers to your closest friend. There's nobody on earth you can hurt more than your wife. Nobody. And God entrusts us with their tender heart and gives to us the responsibility to care for them. And they should never, ever be suspect of their security if they give their heart to us. Against such a high view of marriage, Kidner writes, sexual sin is prevented in the darkest of colors. Proverbs 5.19 For a man to sin sexually against his wife is to trade a reality of true pleasure for a mirage of false gratification. You can't have enough sexual exploits to gratify your carnal desires. Instead of filling you, it will only leave you more empty. But our wives, Proverbs 5, 19, and 20, are given to us as a gift in every capacity of our relationship for true pleasure. Proverbs 6.33, wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Such sin, sexually in particular, destroys a man's name and his honor and his integrity. Proverbs 23.27 and 28, instead of setting you free, sexual sin will imprison you. It will shackle you. The verse says, for a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. If that's not enough to get your attention, to warn us as young or old, to warn the males among us to flee from sexual immorality and be faithful to our wife, even if that's faithful in the days of our preparation for a future marriage, then perhaps... This will motivate us. Sexual sin will kill you. Kill you. Proverbs 2.18, For her house sinks down in, to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. And if that's not enough to motivate you, maybe this will. Sexual sin will lead you to hell. Proverbs 6.27, can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. So instead of violating the marriage covenant, husbands are rather to be Proverbs 5.19. I keep saying Ephesians. I don't know why. Proverbs 5.19. Be ravished with the love of your wife. Be exhilarated and intoxicated with the love of your wife. Or Proverbs 2.17, receive your wife and treat her as your aloop, your closest friend. Our call is to be the head of our wives in Ephesians 5. That's clear. But this is a call to service. And it's clear from the passage, daily death to self. To lay down our life for our wives as Christ lays His life down for the church. To lead from beneath. To be the chief servant. We are the family foot washer. And the one whose example of love, example of love, authenticates our words of love. And our wives should hear both of those often. Tell them, looking deeply into her eyes, 
that you are so thankful that of all the billions out there, God saw fit to give you this one. And what a gift she is to you. She should be beautified by the love that you adorn her with. Husbands, we are to use our tongues to edify, to build up, to affirm, to comfort, to converse with. Our ears to listen to. Our voices to pray for our wives. Never to tear them down or belittle them. That's not funny. There's nothing good in it. I don't want to hear the jokes that disparage your bride, nor does God. God spoke clearly to the Apostle Peter. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. God will not hear the prayer of a husband who doesn't honor his wife. The summary of Proverbs to husbands is this that our wives should flourish under our influence. That they should be more beautified with our love the longer that they live with us. Indeed, Proverbs 18.22, can not many of us sing this verse as the anthem of our life? We all married up. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. What a blessing. Well, wives, what about you? Your call from God in the book of Proverbs is crystal clear. Proverbs 19.14 House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. You're more valuable than all the real estate in Memphis to your husband. Houses and great wealth to realize your worth in the sight of God to your husband your worth to your husband in God's sight is to understand profoundly the calling that God has given you. Do you know you have a call from God and He watches every day with great joy as you exercise obedience to this call? That call from God to you based on Proverbs and elsewhere is to support God's call on your husband. You're called to be your spouse's closest companion and confidant. His choice intercessor. Kidner again writes, far from being a cipher, C-Y-P-H-E-R, I had to define it too. This is what it means. A person who has no will of their own. Far from being a cipher, the woman of Proverbs, Kidner writes, is the making or undoing of her husband. Do you believe this? Show me a man who has this from the whole world whose wife doesn't believe in him. And he's a shell. Show me a man who has this from the whole world whose wife believes in him and he'll face an army. You can make or undo your husband and Proverbs says so. You can be His greatest blessing, Proverbs 18.22. Or you could be rottenness to His bones, Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, 12.4, but she who shames him is like rottenness to his bones. God's call upon wives is to use their God-given gifts and abilities to cause her husband, to cause her family, to cause her home to prosper as the sphere of God's blessing to others, which is why prayed that prayer out loud, eyes open. Make my home a nursery for heaven. Praying for your husband. Ladies, praying for your husband. Praying for your husband has more kingdom impact than if you could speak to stadiums full of thousands week after week. Praying for your husband. That's the way to impact the kingdom and to advance the Gospel. Among other ways, the excellent wife of Proverbs 31, and I know you've read that chapter, many of you ladies, and you've felt discouraged. And I know you've heard the books and the blogs and the articles and the conferences and the podcast, and while all of you are not her, fie on that hell. Yes, you are. I've been around this church for 12 years. You're the upper echelon of ladies on planet Earth. You are the most godly sisters I've ever been surrounded by. And I'm not blowing smoke at you. Kidner says concerning the lady of Proverbs 31, 
She's an administrator, a trader, a craftswoman, a philanthropist, a guide whose influence spreads far beyond her home, though it is centered in her home. And though her achievements are, as she would wish, valued most of all, why does she want to be successful? Valued most of all in her estimation, as she would wish, for their contribution to her husband's fortune and his good standing. Your love is so others-oriented in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31.11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Proverbs 31.23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Did you catch that? Her husband is known. The gates was the place of prominence, business, politics, news, everything happened in the gate of the city in the day that Proverbs was written. Her husband is known in the gate. It'd be like me showing up and them saying, that's Tracy's husband. Which is the way I would love to be known. What a gift. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So that's God's wisdom in very brief fashion for husbands and for wives. Number two, God's wisdom for parents and for children. Parents and children. First parents, then children. Parents, Proverbs says to you, I'll summarize what it says in, in many other ways and forms. The most faithful summary I know how to say would be this, and I get it from chapter 11, which I read right at the beginning. Uh, chapter, chapter 4, verse 4, which I read right at the beginning. Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. The legacy that any parent 10,000 years from now will want to have left for their children is godliness. It's not houses or lands. It's not a 401k or an inheritance. And all those things can be useful in God's kingdom. But God often does more with less, but He always does something amazing with godliness. And when your children stand over your grave, I promise you, the thing we want our kids to be able to say about us, mom lived for the glory of God. Dad lived for the glory of God. There's no shortage of parents who've beaten themselves up and beaten themselves to a bloody pulp with some of the passages of Proverbs. Many a parent have heard the words of Proverbs 22.6 as an unbreakable maxim and they've been left wondering what they did wrong because their adult children have risen up not to righteousness but to rebellion against the Lord. Listen to the words of that verse which are music to the ears of some and a source of woe to so many more. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The literal translation of the Hebrew is Train up a child according to his way. The child's way. And many conclude, and I agree, that the meaning of the verse is you direct your children toward their God-given individual giftings and skills so that they can make the best use of their life for the glory of God in this world if they will just follow that path. Another way to say that, stop trying to relive your childhood through your children. They're different people than you. You don't have to import all that you wish you would have done into their little life. Let them spread their wings and fly. They should have more territory to roam, proverbially speaking, because they're your kids. Let them go their way. Train up a child according to his way or in the way he should go. It's not an unbreakable maxim that if you do family devotions, your kids will get saved. There is a Savior, you're not him. You can point your children to Christ, but Christ must do the saving. And for any who have faithfully labored in prayer, I didn't say perfectly, because there are none of those, but any who have faithfully labored and prayed, discipled and led devotions and brought your kids to church, and they went on to rebel, you need not take Proverbs 22.6 to your prayer closet and beg God to forgive you for all the stuff you did wrong. Did you do stuff wrong? Yes. Does He know that? Yes. Were you faithful? Yes. Many are the reminders, Kidner writes, however, that even the best training cannot instill wisdom. It can only encourage the choice to seek after it. 
For example, taken right out of Proverbs, and I'm leaning heavily, heavily on Kidner because it's the best commentary on Proverbs I've read. And I haven't read many, but this one's excellent. Kidner says, in Proverbs you can find that a son who's very well trained may be too opinionated to learn from anybody. Proverbs 13.1, Proverbs 17.21. A good home, a godly home, Proverbs 10, verse 5, may produce an idle child. Or, a recklessly extravagant person who squanders away all the resources that the parent gives to them so that they can go live licentiously instead of godly. Proverbs 29.3 Excellent parents who follow Christ, who follow His Word, may have a child who grows up, quote, to despise his parents. Proverbs 15, verse 20. Or mock his parents. Proverbs 30, verse 17. Or curse his parents. Proverbs 30, verse 11. Or chapter 20, verse 20. A faithful mom and dad may have a son who, quote, runs through their money. Proverbs 28, 24. Such children bring great heart, heartache to faithful parents. And while the book of Proverbs does not guarantee the outcome, spiritually or otherwise, of our children. Parents are called to train and discipline our children toward wisdom. That is, toward Christ. So the book of Proverbs calls us as parents to point our kids to Christ. Almost done with this section. So parents, here's your moment. Proverbs 13.24 Parents who spare the rod spoil the child. Our discipline when accompanied with love and prayer. Our discipline when accompanied with love and prayer. Love and prayer <laughs> is aiming, Proverbs 23.14, Proverbs 19.18, to deliver our kids from hell. That's why we discipline our kids. We don't want morally straight-laced lost kids. We don't want obedient behavior modification put on your best behavior in front of the crowd. Kids, we want kids who walk with Jesus so they don't perish forever when they die. That's why we discipline. And spare not the rod. The book of Proverbs explains why we should not spare the rod. Proverbs 22.15 Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. And that old man dies hard. Even in big kids like you and me. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. So, one commentator I believe is right when he said, therefore it will take more than words to dislodge it. But as much as we could speak of the place of discipline in the home, we all know as God's children that God's discipline is the corrective to get us back on course. I want to say something very carefully. God's discipline is the corrective to get us back on course. It is not the course. Similarly, there are parents who have beaten themselves up with Proverbs 22.6, tramp a child the way he should go and he'll never leave it. There are also parents who have wielded, spare not the rod, in terribly ungodly ways. It is to get us back on course. It is not the course. Our loving discipline as parents ought to be the exception and not the rule. Just as husbands, I said earlier, should basically brag on their wives, thank you for being you. I'm so glad God gave me you. Just as husbands should do that to their wives, so also should parents to their children. It's not by accident that your child is your child. And if you haven't ever studied the way the conception pattern worked, the billions of opportunities that your child would not be your child should amaze you that your children are your children. That one of these and one of those fertilized to become that one is not an accident. And God entrusted them to you, yes, for discipline, and yes, let's try to dislodge some of that foolishness, but let's just remember while we're trying to dislodge it that there's a lot of foolishness in the one trying to do the dislodging. David Frazier, who some of you know, 20-year missionary to Turkey, and I mention that because I admire this brother so much. He's here in Memphis, a member of a sister church here in town, 
He and his wife, Vicky, served for 20 years in the country of Turkey, 99.9% Muslim, translation, one of the hardest places to be a Christian missionary in all the world, and they stayed for 20 years. And the reason I'm bragging on him about that right now is because in my limited experiences, a lot of the missionaries who've served in the hardest places, when they come back to the United States after a long, faithful service, I tend to get the vibe that they think we're a bunch of spiritual, lazy nobodies doing nothing for Jesus. But David and Vicky came back tender, grace-filled, loving, happy, so eager to brag on what God's doing in this little church. And David said, in my living room, two blocks from here, about five or six years ago, with Tracy sitting right beside me, and Vicky sitting right beside him, yeah, Jordan, seminary, blah, 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 blah. Pastor, blah, theology, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear any of that. Here was his one question. Is there laughter in your home? Laughter. Is there laughter in your home? Thankfully, we were having a pretty good run. <laughs> so yes, I had some recent examples. But parents, when laughter goes out the door, Jesus usually walks out as well. Enjoy your kids. The child of Proverbs in the first nine chapters who's receiving instruction from the Father is the Father's delight. Joy. Tell them you love them. Tell them you're so thankful God entrusted them to your care. Tell them you know you're not God and your law being broken is not the biggest problem in the universe. And that you want to walk with them as they walk with Jesus. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And don't exasperate your children, fathers. Love them. To children. Children have a lot of territory devoted to their instruction in the book of Proverbs. So if you're a little person and you can hear my voice, this is for you. You were not randomly placed with and raised by your parents. Regardless of how you were born or where you were born, the people who raised you are no accident. You were entrusted to your parents by God. Which bears massive responsibilities unto God for them and for you. Now some parents, kids, listen carefully, some parents take those responsibilities that God gave them to raise you with great care and great attention to the Scripture and a heart full of prayer. Other parents squander that influence that God has given them and they use it for selfish gain. The first nine chapters, as I just mentioned, of the book of Proverbs are a father's instruction to his son. Young people, you would do yourself a huge favor to read the first nine chapters of Proverbs over and over again. As we read in Proverbs 4, if you'll take the godly instruction of your parents and the practical wisdom that they have discerned as they've walked with the Lord, and if your heart will hold fast to their words, Proverbs 4.4, 4, you will live. It will be good for you if you'll obey your parents. In chapter 3, we hear a father's heart for his child as well as the expectations that God has for children and what He wants you to be. Listen carefully. Kids, I'm going to try to say it in a way that I think you can understand everything I'm about to say. Be mean to nobody. Ever. And always tell the truth. Never be mean and always tell the truth. Are people mean to you? That's not what I'm asking. Are you mean to others? Do people lie to you? That's not what I'm asking. Do you lie to others? Proverbs 3, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Right here, right now, kids, you can say to Jesus, would you forever and ever and ever come into my heart and help me to be kind to everybody and always tell the truth. That's what God wants for you. Wise children learn to love and fear the Lord at an early age. They realize that their obedience to their parents is really a de facto, kind of a gateway obedience as an offering of their worship to the Lord. 
Similarly, fighting and disobedience against your parents or being mean or unkind or lying to other people. All of those things is not really a fight against your mom or your dad. You're actually fighting against God. In the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, which is the first commandment of the second table of the law, first four commandments are about God, last six commandments are about our relationship with each other, the first one of our relationship with each other of the Ten Commandments, commandment number five is honor your father and mother. Like the book of Proverbs, this commandment shows that the pathway is not a burden but a blessing because the verse goes on to say this, honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land that the Lord your God gives to you. Ephesians 6 in the New Testament quotes the Ten Commandments kids and it says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. None of the other commandments had a promise with it. But if you honor your father and mother, you get a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Jesus quoted that same verse in Matthew 15 and said, Children are to honor their parents, not only when they're little, but actually at the end of life also. That's how Jesus applied that verse. He said, they cared for you. I'm basically summarizing what He said. They cared for you when you were in your developmental years. You're to care for them in their latter years. Do you know that kids, adults, you can explain this to your kids later, kids are God's social security program? If, like many of us, your family situation is not so neat and clean, kids, God's going to provide for you wisdom on how you're supposed to honor your parents. He'll provide for you the wisdom. Some of you are in situations where honoring your parents doesn't mean always saying yes to what they say. Your obedience is first to God, then to them. But 99 times out of 100, what they say is going to be good for you. One of the brothers on setup this morning sent me a text and said, I asked them for insights on today's sermon. He said, since I now have a father in heaven who loves me perfectly, I've had to learn to forgive my own parents for the ways that I was not loved well. I've had to fight holding a grudge and I'm now seeking ways to love them, honor them, as my Heavenly Father tells me to do. Amen and Amen. Finally, brothers and sisters, and this one's the briefest of all. If you're a sibling, you have a brother or sister, or you're a member of a church and you've got a lot of brothers and sisters, then you're to strive to live in loving, peaceful relationship with them. Strive. Not just hope it happens. Work at it. The Lord Jesus must have loved the book of Proverbs because He had at least six younger brothers and sisters. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters, at least two, with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus was the oldest of at least seven. And he lived in harmony with his parents, honoring them, and with his siblings, loving and befriending them. But you know, they didn't always like him. How do we know that? Because one of his own brothers did not even come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah until after Jesus rose from the dead when He was 33-ish years old. That's James. So for 30 plus years, James didn't like a lot of what Jesus had to say. But Jesus loved him. And after His death and resurrection, James believed in Him. And then James, as it would turn out, became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Just as husbands loving their wives is good for the man as well, Ephesians 5, so also siblings loving each other is good for you too. If you'll love your brother and sister, it'll be a blessing to you. Proverbs 18.19 A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Some of you know that when you have a falling out with a sibling, it's hard to get that one right. Proverbs 17.17 though, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You know the people that you shared a womb with? 
Are the people that you're going to call when you're 50, 60, 70 years old going through some of the hardest things in your life? A brother is born for adversity. Maintain those relationships. And the people who come emerging from the tomb of Jesus have a special brotherhood and sisterhood that allows us to carry each other in adversity. The book of Proverbs places a high priority on good and godly friendships. And it teaches us that siblings ought to be such choice friends. Your best friend should be your brother or your sister because it should be difficult for you to find a friend closer than that. Proverbs 18.24, A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, which presumes the brother's close. But Jesus is that friend who sticks closer than a brother. So here's the conclusion. Number one, at this Christmas season, is there somebody that you need to write or call or visit? Or somebody that you need to share with just how thankful you are for them? Is there somebody that you need to reach out to and let them know in no uncertain terms what a blessing they are to you? How glad you are that God made them. And that God gave them to you to be your mom or your dad, your son or your daughter, your brother or your sister. Number two, is there someone on the other side of the coin that you need to find so that you may confess your sin to? Is there a family relationship in your nuclear, immediate, or extended family? Or maybe in your church family? Jesus has a lot to say about that in Matthew 5 and how you can't come to worship unless you make those relationships right. Is there somebody you need to confess your sin to? A family relationship that's broken because your sin needs to begin... It's broken because of your sin and it needs to begin to heal, but it's not going to start healing until you bring the ointment of confession. Well, if it's an especially broken kind of sinful situation, don't just go barging into their life. Seek out somebody. Another trusted godly person or people who would help you discern when and how it would be best to approach that situation. Number three, not only bless somebody by telling them what they mean to you and how thankful you are, or confess your sin to somebody that you've sinned against and that relationship is broken and let it begin to heal. But number three, do you have a forever family? In a very real way, Jesus experiences all the relationships we've just talked about. He's a husband to His bride, the church. Isaiah refers to Him as the eternal Father. Is He God the Father? No, but He's so fatherly to all His children. And He wanted to gather Jerusalem under His arms as a hen gathers her chicks. He has that affection as a parent for us, His children. But He's also a brother to us. Romans chapter 8. So He's both husband, father, and brother. If you want to learn how to live in God's will in each of the relationships that we've talked about, we have to learn how to look carefully at the Scriptures to watch Jesus. How does He relate to His earthly family and to His heavenly Father? Marriages, you may know, are temporary. Marriages, once in heaven, are like the angels. Neither married nor given in marriage. Yes, we'll know each other and we'll know all the wonderful things that we shared together as husband and wife, but till death do us part is part of our vows for very biblical reasons. So do you have a forever family? A family with the Lord? Do you belong to Christ? I assure you that the greatest Christmas you've ever had will be just a couple weeks away if you give your heart to Jesus today. All the relationship wisdom in the book of Proverbs is intended to lead you toward the source of wisdom and His name is Christ Jesus. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Which is why I said at the beginning, if you don't have Christ, you cannot have the blessed household relationships that God intends. For all the ways that you've ever broken God's Word, and not been the family member that God's called you to be. All the ways that you've been sinned against by people who are supposed to love you and have all the wounds and all the scars from all that sin from your various family members. God is able to step into that space. Your sin and others. He can step into that space and meet you with His grace of forgiveness and healing. You're not too far gone to experience the great grace of Jesus today. 
So fourth and finally, if you need a forever family, you're looking at a less than impressive but very good option. Embrace the church as your family. According to God, we are one family as covenant members of the same local church. So if you're without an earthly family, may the church of Christ, even for those who do have an earthly family, increasingly prove to be the source of God's nurture and support and love and care and companionship that we were all created to need and to enjoy. If you don't belong to a church family, you are robbing yourself of a blessing. Linking your life with Christ is vital. And though that relationship is very personal, it's not private. It's to be shared in community with others who've linked their life with Christ by faith. Linking your life with a body of Christ, a local church that seeks to live just like our New Testament siblings that we read about in the Bible, without them, we can't thrive the way God intended. With them, we will realize that we have made one of the most significant choices in all of our life. Who should you marry is a very important choice. To what church should you belong is nearly as important. Because it governs so much about our spiritual diet and direction, fellowship and care, sharing of concerns and prayer, joys and challenges, sorrows and gladness, all shared together in a community of faith called the local church. You should belong to one of those. Why wait any longer before you unite yourself with a local church where you will be taught to obey the Word of God? That's where I close. Embrace Christ's church as your family. Well, in just a moment, for those who remain seated, and meditate on the things we've considered, I want to encourage you to isolate one thing and take it to the Lord in prayer. And For those who come to the Lord's table, as Pastor Brian indicated a moment ago, here's what we're saying at this table. These people are part of my forever family. I'm taking this emblem of the body and blood of Christ as a symbol of my desire and really is an expression of prayer to the Lord to say, by God's grace, I will love and serve these people for the glory of Jesus. Who by His blood has ransomed us all into the same family forever. And so, when we come to partake, we're, we're singing the silent song that Jesus has made us His family forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, my little stammering tongue and stumbling words, I offer them all to You as a sacrifice. Put it right on the altar, right in front of You, Lord. And I pray that anything I've said that's true and right, wise and helpful, that You would elevate it in our mind and heart and cause it to fester until it blooms and bears fruit for Your glory. And anything I've said that's wrong, I pray that You would erase it from our minds forever. And our sincere prayer is that those of us who have come from whole or broken backgrounds would all find the grace that we need from the Gospel of Christ to love those that You've entrusted to our care, to obey those that You've put in charge over us in this world. And Lord, we also pray very specifically that You would cause those who have not united to Christ to throw themselves into His arms. Instead of you just giving them to Jesus, uh, giving Jesus to them, I pray that you would give them to Jesus. That He would own them, rule them, be their Lord, their Master, their Savior. And I also pray that you would unite them with a church family where they will learn to carry out all these glorious relationships that Jesus has purchased and provides grace for us to live in. Lord, be glorified now as we respond either by remaining seated or in partaking of the Lord's Supper. And as we sing this great hymn, I pray that You would cause the words of it to deepen our awareness of Your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.